If you got your Bibles, uh, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses, we're going to finish up chapter 4 today, um, look at verses 8 through 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 21. I want to ask you a question today. If you're here today and you, you're a parent and you have children, what would you do or what should you do if you found that your children were engaging in some type of sin or some type of risky behavior? What would you do? We'd beat them, of course. That always works. That's a good first start. Sit them down and talk to them. What else? Anything? The point is, would you do something about it or would you sit back and say, eh, they'll, they'll figure it out? No, you, you love them. You care about them. You sit down and do something about it. Now, here's the next question. What should we do if one of our church family was doing the same thing? That's a little bit harder question, isn't it? We are, we are right in the middle of three lessons we did one last week, we're doing one today, and then we'll do one next week, that have to do with judging. And, it, and it, a lot of it answers this question, how do we deal with our brothers and sisters in Christ when we see them engaging in sin, we see them engaging in a behavior that we know is wrong, what do we do? Now, last week, if you weren't here, and I would encourage you to go to the podcast and listen to it, we asked the question, to, do we judge or not judge? And one of the questions we asked was, are we to judge other people? Now, a lot of people, unbelievers especially, atheists, but unfortunately a lot of Christians would answer that question, well, no, we're not supposed to judge other people. And I said it last week, that is absolute baloney. I don't know any other way, nicer way to put it. We are to judge other people. And in fact, we know down deep that that's not true. If we, if we saw somebody stealing a television... Would we say, well, you know, it's not my place to judge? Of course not. We would say, hey, man, that's wrong. Put that back. If your children, if you caught your child in a lie, do you say, well, you know, who am I to judge? Would anybody do that? No, that would be foolish. You'd say, no, it's wrong to lie. And by the way, it wouldn't even cross your mind that you were doing anything wrong in saying that. You know that's wrong, and you make a judgment on that fact. But it seems like everybody's favorite scripture is Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, lest you be not judged. Even the atheists can quote that, we said last week. You know, they, they know that before they know John three sixteen. But think about that scripture right there. If you take that just, just by itself out of context, and last week we looked at it in context, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. But if you take that out of context by itself, that would prohibit judging of any kind. Would it not? That means we'd have to stop preaching against sin and you'd have to stop disciplining your children because you can't judge. Now, we know that's not what it means. And, of course, if you go read the Scripture in context, it's not. And, in fact, just a few verses later, Jesus gives us a direct command to judge. He says in Matthew seven twenty four, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with right judgment or righteous judgment or correct judgment. In other words, he says, don't judge by what you see. Don't judge by, by the way things look on the outside, but judge rightly. And what that told us is there, it, there are a lot of wrong ways to judge, but there is a right way to do it, okay? And, and so we asked three questions last week, and we finished up with this. Are we to judge ourselves and others? 
And the answer to that is yes. But we always start where? With ourselves. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 5, first, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you can see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. So yes, we're to judge ourselves. Yes, we're to judge others. But we always start with ourselves first. You take the log out of your own eye, then you can see clearly. You're, if you're not judging yourself, you're not qualified to even judge anybody else. So always start with yourself. The second question we asked was, what parameters do we use to judge? And we saw that we don't judge by appearance. We don't judge by arbitrary human standards. We don't judge by things that we make up. We judge by one standard and one standard only, and that's the Word of God. If God's Word says it's wrong... It's wrong, and it's okay for us to say that it's wrong. It's okay for us to agree with God, okay? You're not just making things up. If it's in the Word, it's okay to judge by the Word. And, in the, and here's a scripture on that, by the way, just so you know I'm not making this up. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers and sisters, that you may learn by us, do not go beyond what is written. Do not go beyond, when you judge, you don't go beyond what's in the Word of God. That is your standard. Okay. Uh, the third thing, is our judgment limited? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. We all are human beings. We all have fallen natures. By, and so we can only judge imperfectly. Only God sees the hidden things of the heart. Only God sees the hidden motives and purposes of somebody's heart. Therefore, he has the final say. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 4 through 5. Paul says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. In other words, Paul says, I judged myself. I looked at myself. And I can't find anything. But he says, even that doesn't acquit me. And even, even though I can't find anything, I can't be sure that I'm innocent. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul says, yes, I'm going to judge, but I always judge knowing that there's things I can't see. There's purposes and motives, hidden things that I can't get to. Therefore, my judgment is limited. Now, don't make this mistake. I used to say this kind of thing. Why should we judge if we know we're going to do it imperfectly. If you know you're not a perfect judge, then why should we do it? Well, the same way we do everything else. Do we preach perfectly? No. Do we teach perfectly? No. Do we parent perfectly? No. Does that mean we give up? No. We still strive to do it according to the principles of God's Word, even though we know we'll do it imperfectly. You don't get at... Just because we judge imperfectly doesn't mean you don't do it. Don't mean you say, you know what, I'm not real good at that. I, I, I don't, I'm not a perfect judge, therefore I'm not even going to try it. No, the, Jesus said, don't judge by appearance, judge with righteous judgment. Now next week, okay, next week we're going to get to, this is, I know that's a weird title, right? How Satan Saves a Soul. But if you jump into verse 5, you're going to find a case where there's sin in the church and nobody would do anything about it. They let it go, and they let it go, and they let it go, and they let it go. And Paul, it finally got to the point where Paul said, turn him over to Satan so his soul will be saved. Now, guys, we don't want it to go to that point, do we? Would you ever want somebody in your church to get to the point where the pastor says, turn him over to Satan 
so their flesh will be destroyed and their soul will be saved. How do we stop it from getting to that point? How do we just not let it go and go and go until it happens to that? That's what we're going to look at today. And, and the title of our lesson this morning, excuse me, is the characteristics of a spiritual parent. The characteristics of a spiritual parent. Remember the first lesson is on judging. Next week we'll see a scenario where nobody did it and what ended up happening. How do we keep it from getting to that point? And we'll look at that today. Now... 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 21. By the time Paul gets to this point in his letter, he is hot. Now, he's a man. Paul's a great man, by the way. Okay? But he's still a man. He still gets angry. He still gets aggravated. He still gets sarcastic. And if we look at his... If he, as he's writing this letter today, he gets, starts to get very uh, sarcastic. And you see this in verse 8. He says this, Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. And without us, you have become kings. And I would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. You see, Paul wants them to see the irony of their situation. Remember, the problem in Corinth is pride, and they're lining up behind different teachers. They've got a church, and the people are saying, well, I like Pastor Henry. And somebody else says, well, I like, I like this person. Another person says, well, I line up behind this guy. And Paul's been just excoriating them. I mean, he's just letting them have it with both barrels. And he got to the point where he's just getting sarcastic. And he wants them to see the irony of their situation. In other words, they're lining up behind leaders, but then they don't act the way their leaders act. You'd think if you put a leader up there to emulate, you would act the way they act. But he says you're not acting that way at all. In fact, you're acting in the opposite way of your leaders. Look at verse 9. Paul says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. What's Paul talking about here? Um, when Roman generals would win a victory, they'd go off to war, and they'd win a victory, they'd bring their army back into Rome, and they'd have a big pr procession. It was like a big parade. They called it a triumph. And they would all dress up in their best uniforms and they'd have their chariots and their horses and they'd have all this captured treasure and gold and weapons and they would bring this into the city. And, and, and it was, you know, the crowds would line the street like this big parade. And at the very end of the procession would be these captives, would be the prisoners of war that they had captured in battle. And they would, be, they would all be chained up together and they, of course, had probably been beaten, bloody and wounded. And they're coming along at the end, and of course, they're sentenced to death. Where they're taking them to is the arena. They're going to take them to the uh, arena where they can throw them in there with lions and tigers, and, and, and basically they'll be mauled to death in order to amuse the, the crowds. You see, when Paul uses that word spectacle in the Greek, he's talking about that little band of captives. He says, you know what, you guys, he said at the church, y'all act like the generals. Y'all are acting like the heroes. You think you got it all together. You're already rich. You're already powerful. You already reign. And he said, the apostles, he said, we're like that little band of captives at the end. That's how we've been made a spectacle to the world. In verse 10 through 13, he continues that sarcasm. Look what he says. We're fools for Christ's sake. You're wise. We're weak. You're strong. You're held in honor. We're held in disrepute. Okay, he's just, he's just pouring on this irony. He goes on to say in verses 11 through 13, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. 
We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. That word entreat means to react kindly or gently. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, this is really strong language. Can you imagine Pastor Henry gets up this morning and he, and he starts talking that way? And he, he's saying, you know, he said, you know, us teachers, us pastors, we've been treated like dirt. We've been, you know, beaten. We've been all this. And you guys act like you got it all together. Now, how would you feel if you were sitting all out there? Would you feel kind of shamed? You see, in fact, it, it, when you ask that question, why, what is Paul trying to accomplish here? It almost sounds like he's trying to shame them. Shame them into changing. But then Paul tells us in verse 14, that's exactly not what I'm trying to do. He says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Okay, now here's where we get to the crux of the matter today. Remember for four chapters, Paul has been, as I said earlier, just unloading on them with both barrels. He's, he's preached against their carnality or their worldliness. He's preached against their pride. He's preached against their love of human wisdom. He's preached against their divisions and their splits. And he's just been hammering them and hammering them and hammering them. And then he comes here in verse 14 and he says, Okay, I'm going to tell you why I've been doing all this. I'm going to tell you why I've been so sarcastic. I'm going to tell you why I've used such strong language. I'm going to tell you why I'm so intense about all this. And he says, the reason I am is because I see you as my children, and I'm your spiritual father. You see, as a parent, we should really understand, if you're a parent here today, you should understand where Paul's coming from. Over the years as I've raised my boys, I've had a lot of other boys and into my home and, and that are not mine. And I've seen things that they do. I've seen mistakes that they make. And I can tell you, I'm a lot stronger with my boys than I am with them. I'm a lot sterner with my boys than I am with them. Why? Because they're mine. They're my kids. That, that boy, he's not mine, but this one is. And see, that's what Paul is saying. He said, you're mine. That's why I'm talking so strongly. That's why I'm using such strong language, because I see you as my, my spiritual children. I love you. I care about you. What, your, your future, your maturity, your, your character means a lot to me. That's why I'm talking like this. You see, that's what Paul's saying. In the middle of doing all, in the middle of this thing, I need to tell you the reason that I'm so intense about this relationship that we have, and that's because I see you as my children, and I'm your, your father. In 3 John 1, 4, John, the Apostle John said this, I have no greater joy than to see my children walk in the truth. But see, Paul is kind of saying the opposite. I, have, I can tell you the opposite of that other side of that coin is I have no greater anguish than to see my children not walk in the truth. And that's what Paul is seeing. Paul's saying, I poured my heart out for you, and I gave you the truth, and I birthed you, and then all of a sudden you're, just, you're not walking in truth anymore. And he said, the anguish in my heart is killing me. I mean, you can see it's a real deal for him. He really saw himself as a spiritual parent. He said this in verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. The, the word guide there is the Greek word pedagogus. Okay? And a pedagogus was a slave or a servant who was assigned to watch over a child. It's kind of like a glorified nanny. Okay? Um, it's the same word that Paul uses in Galatians 3 where he says the law was our guardian 
to bring us to Christ. When he talks about the Old Testament law, he said the Old Testament law was your guardian, it was your tutor. It kind of kept you in line until Christ came. He said that's what a pedagogus is. A pedagogus is a slave or a servant that watches over a child while the father is, is away. And this, guard, this guardian or this tutor, this pedagogus, he would take, take the child to and from school. They would guide the child in moral decisions. They would help the child in decision-making. Um, and, and Paul says, theoretically, and he's using, he's using hyperbole here, you could have many guides. You could have many tutors, but you only have one daddy. You only have one father. Paul says, when it comes to you, I'm more than a slave. I'm more than a pedagogus. I'm more than a steward. I'm more than a, a hired hand. I'm your father. Okay? He said, that's how I feel towards you. And that's why I'm being so strong with my language in calling you into account. And you can see, if you read it, because of that feeling, that's why there's so much passion when he talks in this, in this letter. He's not indifferent. He's not just writing some letter to some church he doesn't know. He loves them as a, um, as a father. Now, the rest of our passage today is going to expand on that concept of being a spiritual father or a spiritual mother. Now, you may ask the question, okay, Derek, that's all cool, but what in the world has that got to do with me? Okay, now remember, we're talking about judging. We're in the middle of our three lessons on judging. Let me tell you, we live in a time where I believe one of the greatest needs in the church is for mature men and women of God to step up and take young Christians under their wing and begin to serve as spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers to those, um, to those young Christians. Do you understand? I think we forget this sometimes. You remember back, if, if we went back to the Corinthian church, do you understand everybody they brought into church came out of a pagan background? Back then, you didn't get anybody saved that grew up in church, Right? They all grew up in temples. They all grew up worshiping pagan gods. They didn't come in with this background of knowing what it meant to be a Christian. They took teaching that you had to teach them the principles of God's Word. You had to spend time with them. Can I tell you that today, more than any other time in history since that point, we're bringing people into this church that don't grow up in church? Do you understand that? In our culture, more and more, we're seeing people come in and get saved that know nothing about God. They don't know anything. And let me tell you, an hour on Sunday morning is not enough. We need men and women that will step up and serve as spiritual mentors. Take, come alongside of those people. And by the way, it might be a young person or it may be an old person. It has nothing to do with age um, physically, but it does have to do with age spiritually. And, and by the way, Pastor Henry is a spiritual father to this congregation, but he can't do it all. There's 450 people here on Sunday morning. He, cannot, he can't walk alongside and get involved in the lives of every one of those people. He can't do it. That's why we have to do it. See, we have to step up. We need mature men, mature women, to become spiritual parents to young Christians, to love them, watch over them, and let's, listen and judge them the same way that when I see my boys doing something wrong, I go to them and I judge them. Don't you? Do you not? You better be or you ain't doing your job. 
It's your job as a parent to judge your children, to look at what they're doing and say, by the way, judging means I make a decision that something is right or something is wrong. And when I see my children doing something wrong, I go to them and I say, what you're doing is wrong. That's a judgment. We need spiritual parents to do the same thing in the church. Because we got people doing things in the church they shouldn't be doing, and nobody will say anything to them. Oh, who am I to judge? People in glass houses shouldn't cast the first stone. And that person just goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into sin, and then one day they fall away because nobody will step up and help them. Nobody will act like a, a parent. You see, I want to ask you today, we're going to look at three things in Paul's passage real quickly, the characteristics of a spiritual parent. Are you willing to step outside your family and help somebody else? Are you willing to do that? Well, let me give you three characteristics of a spiritual parent. Number one is love. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. You see, years ago, years ago, there was a few of us in the church here that, that started mentoring young people. And um, I remember this. This was, this was probably 12 years ago. It was a long time ago. And we started mentoring young people. And, and, it, and, and, and finally, we got together and said, oh, we, we ended up making a program out of it. We ended up like having a paper you had to sign and rules you had to follow and all of this. And that wasn't necessarily bad. But what, what happened is we, we got away from it being just a one-on-one -on -one ministry to a program. And it just, can I tell you what happened to it? It just fell apart. You see, I can tell you something. If, let me, if you try to do it out of duty, if you try to do it out of some sense of obligation, it'll last for a little while, but it'll just fall apart. You got to do it out of love. You got to really love that person. You got to say, man, I, I'm, I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk with you, I'm going to talk with you, I'm going to get involved in your life, and I'm going to help you. You see, discipleship involves a relationship built on love. Listen to this. If, if there's never more, if you want to see a description of a parent, you'll find it right there. This is how Paul describes his relationship with the people of the church at Corinth. He said, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls, and if I love you more, am I to be loved less? Have you ever, is there a better definition of a parent than that? That's what a parent is. I, I will give anything for you, and the more I love you, the more I invest in you, the more I admonish you and help you, what does it seem like you get back? They don't love you too much. See, Paul's saying, I'm not your friend, I'm your father. I don't come along to be your best friend and make you feel all good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to help you whether you like it or not. That's what parents do. You see? See, that's parental love. Love that doesn't ask for anything in return. I'm going to do what's best for my kids whether they like me for it or not. I don't care. Okay? That, that's what parents do. I, I know what's best for you, and I'm going to do it. If you don't like me for it, man, that's just too bad. Okay? That's what Paul is saying. You may love me less the more I do for you, but that's okay. Because I'm, I'm going to give it all for you. And that, as it, it, that is as it ought to be for a parent. Number two, admonish. Paul says, I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now, if we're going to parent a spiritual child, you must not only love them, but you must be willing to admonish them. Okay, now let me, let's make sure we understand the word admonish. In some of your translations, it, it, you'll probably see it say, it may say rebuke them. 
And, and, and this is, has the idea where you sit somebody down and you look them in the eye and you say, what you are doing is wrong. You rebuke them. You admonish them. That's what Paul says, I'm doing as your spiritual parent. I'm telling you what you are doing is, is wrong. Now, the, that word literally means in the Greek to criticize somebody with a view towards changing their behavior. In other words, you're not just criticizing them as an act of punishment. You're not criticizing them in order to shame them or in order to condemn them. That's not why you're doing it. You're criticizing them with an eye toward... You, you, in other words, you want to change their behavior. Okay, That's what admonish means. The, the word admonish assumes there's a weakness or a problem or a sin in somebody's life and there's a parent not afraid to make a judgment and address it. Okay, let me say that again. The word admonish means there's a problem or a weakness or a sin in somebody's life and there's somebody willing to step up as a spiritual parent and say what you're doing is wrong. And this is why it's wrong according to the, to the Word of God. And we'll see that more next week. Think about, think about human parents for just a minute. Does a, does a human parent not have an obligation not just to love their kids, but don't you have an obligation to recognize problems in your kids and weaknesses in your kids and address those things? I think I, I watch parents sometimes, and I think one of the biggest problems we have in America today is, is parents somehow are not able to see weaknesses in their kids anymore and address it. It's like they want everything to be fine. They want them to get every award, make every team be successful. Listen, every one of us have weaknesses. We all do. And a good parent will address that weakness and say, this is something you're not strong in, you need to work on. Okay, these are, these are talents you have. That's great. You know, I encourage that. But at the same time, you got talents, you got weaknesses. And these are things that we need to point those things out. And if you aren't, you're not, you're not doing your job. Okay, you're supposed to be molding in them and, and building them up and making them mature into good human beings, if nothing else. You can't do that by not addressing weaknesses. As a spiritual parent, it's the same. If you really care about a young Christian, you really want to see them come to maturity, you really want to see them be the best Christian they can be, then you have an obligation to address the sin, to address the problem, to address the weaknesses in their lives. That's part of discipling someone. Now, let me say this real quick. We talk sometimes about discipling. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. There are two things you need to do to disciple someone. Number one is you need to teach them the principle of God's Word. Would we all agree with that? If you want to disciple someone, a young Christian, the first thing you have to do is teach them the principles of God's Word. And by the way, I think we do a very good job of that in this church. But you can't just disciple somebody by teaching. Okay? You have to come alongside them. You have to somehow or another get involved with them, get to know them, get involved in their life, walk alongside them, and you have to confront them from time to time if needed. In other words, you know, this is a place where I don't think we've done such a good job in the church. We tend to back off a little bit. Uh, you know, it's not really my place to, to do all that. But see, we, this is where we need mature men and women of God to step up and get involved. It takes time, it takes commitment, and it takes getting your hands dirty. I'm not going to lie about that. It takes getting your hands dirty sometimes. I've said this before. I, I, I despise drama. 
Uh, we have a dramaless household. No drama allowed in our house whatsoever. But sometimes getting in, it's, it's hard for me because when I step out and get involved in somebody else's life, there's all this drama, which I absolutely despise. But that's what it takes sometimes, is getting involved in things you don't necessarily want to get involved in. Number three, you've got to love them. You've got to be willing to admonish them. But here's the biggest one. You've got to be willing to set the example. Look what Paul says in verse 14, 15 and 16. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, imitate me. Imitate me. How many of you, how many of you can say that to somebody? Go up to a young Christian and say, let me tell you, let me tell you what you need to do. Follow me. Walk behind me. I'll show you how to do it. Wherever I step, you step. I'll show you how it's done. Just follow me. If you don't know what, if you, know, if you don't, until you get old enough to, to, and mature enough to kind of see the way to go on your own, get behind me and follow in, in my steps. I mean, that's what Paul said. Be imitators of, of me. A spiritual parent, just like, it's just like a physical parent. We should set the pattern for our children. And, th and by the way, this is probably the most important thing because nothing else works without it. If you're going to disciple someone, if you're going to kind of come alongside someone and try to, to help them, you should first and foremost set the pattern. Because by the way, if you don't set the pattern, can you, you understand they're not going to listen to a thing you say. You can say anything you want, and they're looking at your life, and they're saying, she don't do that. Why would I do it? He don't do that. Why would I do it? So that's the first thing they're going to look at is, forget what you say, it's what you're, what you're doing. You see, parents reproduce themselves in their kids, right? You want to disciple kids in your home? Then let me tell you, you better be sure that you are what you want them to be. Because there's a pretty good chance that whatever you are is what they're going to turn out to be. Let me say that again. If you want to disciple kids, if you want to raise kids to be strong, mature, wise, Christian men and women, then you better make sure you are one because what you are is pretty much what they're going to turn out to be. No matter what you say, it's what you are that they emulate. You know, I've said this a thousand times. When I got married, nobody gave me a book and said this is how to be a, a husband. The only thing I had to go by is what I grew up with for 20 years, watching. When I had a child, nobody gave me a manual and said this is how you're a parent. All I had to go by was what I had watched for 20 years. I emulated that, didn't you? <laughs> That's all you got. What makes you think that, that parenting is any different. They're just watching you. They're going to turn out to be the husband or the wife that you are. They're going to turn out to be the, the parent that you are. That's what, they're going to, that's what they're going to grow up into, most likely. You see, in the church, it's the same way. I need spiritual parents to come alongside young Christians that can show them this is how to walk like Christ. This is how to be a Christian. Follow me. Watch me. I'll show you how it's, it's done. You know, the toughest place, I was thinking about this. You know, the toughest place to disciple is in the home. Your children are the toughest to disciple because you cannot put on a mask at home. You just can't do it. You cannot wear a mask 24 hours a day. Your children see you, see you in the good and they see you in the bad. 
They see you when you're happy. They see you when you're sad. They see you when you're, you're, you're elated. They see you when you're angry. They see you when you're grouchy. They see you when you're sarcastic. They see everything. You cannot put a mask on 24 hours a day. Okay? That's why, by the way, you know that's why the Bible says that an elder or a leader in the church should have, a God, should have godly children? You ever thought about that? The Bible says if you're going to be a pastor, you're going to be a teacher, you're going to be an elder in your church, you should have godly children. Why? Because if you have godly children, that shows, you, that shows the church your faith is real. There's a genuineness to your faith. If you're able to disciple at home, you can disciple anywhere. That's, that's what it's saying. You're, you're, they, they know you're not just putting on a mask. You're the real deal. That's why it says they should have godly children because it shows there's a genuineness to your faith. We are to set the pattern. We are to set the pattern for our kids, for our grandkids. We are to set the pattern for those we mentor and those we disciple. We should be able to say, as Paul did in Philippians 4, 9, the things that you heard and see in me, do those things. I mean, think about that. We, you know, we sit here all day, do, do like Christ, do like Christ, do like Christ. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But Paul was able to say, the things you see in me, do those things. That's what we should strive for, to actually be able to say that to somebody. Look, if, you need, if you're so young and immature that you, need a, you can't just look at the Bible, you need a physical example to follow, then follow me. I'll take you there. I'll show you how to get there. Because see, some Christians, they need that. They need that physical example they can see. Paul says, follow me then. Can we do that? We should be able to. You see, discipling isn't just teaching. It isn't just showing someone how to apply those principles. It's living those principles in your life. And by the way, when you live that kind of life, your, your life will admonish other people, not just your words. They'll see your life, and that'll make them think, man, I've said there are certain people in my life that I get around, and they make me want to be a better man. Just being around them makes me want to be a better person. They don't say anything. I just look at them. Live that kind of life. Admonish other people with your life. Admonish your children. Admonish your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with your life. And by the way, just to show you that... Now, I want you to watch this. Just to show you that Paul wasn't all words, I want to show you this is exactly the kind of life he lived. Look at verse 17. Paul says this. Remember the last verse he just said, imitate me. Remember that? He just said, imitate me. And then he says this in verse 17. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Now you may say, now wait just a second. What, what's the deal here? Paul just said, imitate me. That's why I sent you Timothy. Why would he do that? Why would he say, imitate me? I'm going to send Timothy to you. I'm going to tell you, this is an absolute wonderful illustration of the ultimate in being a spiritual father. Paul had done such a good job in discipling Timothy, in raising Timothy, that Paul says, I can send Timothy to you, and it's just like he's a chip off the old block. It is exactly like I'm there. Now that would be awesome to be able to say, wouldn't it? That I've done such a job with this young man that I can send him to you, and it's just like I'm there. He acts just like me. He teaches just like me. He walks just like me. It's just like I'm, I'm there. And look at verse 17, what he said. That's why I sent you Timothy, 
my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways. Paul said, my ways. When Timothy comes, you'll see how I do it. Because he does it just like me. Wouldn't that be awesome to be able to have brothers and sisters in Christ that you can look back over a period of years and say, man, he's doing it just like me. But I got to tell you, you got to do it right first. Right? We want to we raise up men and women that are like us, but yet we have to do it right. You see, Paul had been a spiritual father to Timothy. He had set the example for him. Paul had, had become Christ-like, and, and God had used him to raise up Timothy as a Christ-like man. And now Paul says, I can send Timothy, and it's just like I'm coming on my own. It, it's no different. Now, can we say that? Can we say that we've been so influential on someone else's life that they're Christ-like because we're Christ-like. Let's close with verses 18 through 21. He says this, he says, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a love and spirit of gentleness? Let me read that one more time. Paul says... Some are arrogant, and they're acting that Paul, don't worry about him. He's not going to do anything. He's not coming. He's not going to take care of this situation that's going on in this church. Paul said, you're arrogant, but he says, I'm going to come soon if the Lord wills. And when I come, I'm not going to be interested in talk, but I'm going to be interested in power. For the kingdom of God doesn't consist in words. The kingdom of God consists in power. Now, what does it mean... When Paul says the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Now this is kind of a tough one, and I'm not 100% sure, but I'm going to give you three options. Now let me say this first of all. Now let me understand, Paul is not denying the importance of the word of God. Paul is not denying the importance of doctrine or teaching. He understands that's important, but he also understands without the power of the spirit of God, it's just words. Do y'all understand that? I used to tell my son, when I was in college, I took a class in, in, in Bible study, and my professor, his name, I still remember this, his name was Dr. Priest. That's an easy name to remember. And uh, he probably knew the Bible better than I did. He knew it. He taught the Bible his whole life, back to forth. He was no more saved than that chair. You see, without the power of the Spirit of God, it's just words on a piece of paper. It's the Spirit of God that enables that Word to be, to be life-changing, to be cleansing. Now, he, he knew the Word, he just he didn't have the power. Okay? But see, the power of God shows itself in multiple ways. First, I'm going to give you the first two, and then I'll give you the third one. First, the power of God shows itself in the regeneration and sanctification of believers. We say it in this life, all the, in this church all the time, true salvation equals a changed life. If you are truly saved, if the Word is in you and the power of God is in you, you become a different person. There's no way around it. You, you can't have the pardon without the purity. We'll talk about that next week. You can't have the pardon. You can't have half Jesus. You can't say, well, I get forgiveness, but I don't get the power against sin. It, they come together. It's a, it's a package deal. When He saves you, He purifies from you. Okay? Now... That's the first place we see the power of God in, in our life and in the church. Secondly, it shows itself in the power of miracles. 
Okay? On numerous and necessary occasions, both in the Old, and the New, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we still see this today, the gospel will be validated by miracles. doesn't happen every day, but it still happens. That was true in the beginning, and it's still true today. So we see the power of God. Paul says the kingdom of God is in power. He means it's in the power to change a person's life. It's in power to perform miracles. But here's the third one I want you to see. The power of God shows itself in the protection of the church. And this is the one that I think Paul is talking about. In other words, down through history, the power of God... You understand God don't just establish the church and then stand back with His arms crossed and say, Boy, I sure hope they can keep this thing going. I sure hope that 2,000 years from now, that church is still here. Does anybody think He does that? No, you see, I think God is actively involved in this body. He's actively involved in Crawfordville First Baptist. He's actively involved in Sopchoppy Southern. And he's cleaning the church and purifying the church and working in the church and making sure that, that church is here for me and for my kids and for my grandkids and for my great-grandkids and my great-great-grandkids. God's doing that through power. You see, he does it. He knows his power is needed to protect the church, to defend the church, to govern the church. Without it... His power, the church would have ceased to exist decades ago, millennia ago. It would have just stopped. I'll give you a couple of examples and what I mean by this. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 30. We'll get to this probably later in the year. Paul says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak, many of you are sick, and some of you have already died. Do y'all see that? He says, see, they were doing things in church they shouldn't have been doing. And Paul says, because you're doing that, a lot of you are weak and sick, and some of you already, he's already took some of you out. You're gone. You died. That, that word sleep means die. See, God's not just sitting by saying, I'm just going to let stuff happen in my church. No, he deals with it. If we won't deal with it, he'll deal with it. And we'll see that next week. Look at, uh, this is our lesson next week. Okay, we're going to study this next week. Paul says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, you got somebody in your church that will not repent of their sin, and y'all won't do anything about it. You've had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to deal with it and you let it go and you let it go and you let it go. He said, now it's come to the end. Deliver him over to Satan and let Satan destroy his flesh so his spirit will be saved. See, God doesn't just sit back. He, he's going to keep his church pure. He's going to be involved in the governing. But can I tell you what he wants us to do? He never wants that to happen. He wants us to get involved. Does he not? early in the process, when we see things in people's lives, saying, hey, what you're doing is wrong. Look, at this is what the Word says. And don't just come to them as somebody that don't even know them, but come to them as a friend. Come to them as a parent, somebody that has a relationship with them. And we'll talk about all this next week and, and when we talk about church discipline and how it should be carried out. By the way, what, do you, what is Paul? Paul says, I'm going to come to you with a rod. He says, how many of y'all have ever said that to your children? It's up to you. It's your choice. You want this or you want that. 
change your behavior, do it right, and everything's fine. You don't, I'm going to beat the tar out of you, right? How many of y'all ever said that? Don't we do that? We give them, that's what Paul's saying. You want me to come in love or you want me to come with a stick? You want me to come as a, as a loving father or you want me to come as somebody that's just going to beat the tar out of you? Which one do you want? He's saying make up your mind. Deal with the situation. What does he mean? Does he mean when he comes that they're going to get sick and die? Does he mean that when he comes, he's going to take those people that are causing problems and turn them over to Satan? I don't know. I'm not sure what he means, and Paul doesn't elaborate. But I can tell you this. We should never, ever think that God's power is not continually protecting and purifying and governing his church. Jesus said it years ago. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not bring it down. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not. Trust me, he ain't relying on me to make sure that don't happen. He's relying on himself. He's going to deal with situations. And as we'll see next week, he has set up a specific process to handle it. Okay? And that's what we'll look at next week. And again, it's kind of an uh, enticing title, How Satan Saves the Soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 1 Corinthians 4 as we've come to the end of this chapter. And as we do, everything next week begins to change. Paul has dealt in the first four chapters with divisions and splits. And now he's going to turn and start to deal with other sins in the church. And Father, I just pray that these, these men and women of God that have come this morning to sit and listen to your word, that Holy Spirit, you'll just begin to build something in us to realize the... The, the situation that sits in front of us. You're, we, this, this world is not much longer. Even if it is, we don't have that much time to make a difference in this church, in this county, in our families. Help us to step up and be spiritual parents, not only to our physical children, but to be spiritual parents to spiritual children in this body. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to begin to build relationships in this body, to point out if it, to each, somebody in this room this morning today may see somebody across the way, point them out to them and say, I need you to go talk to them, build a relationship with them, disciple them, parent them. Only you can do that, Holy Spirit. We don't want to do it out of duty, we don't want to do it out of obligation, but we want to do it out of love. God, help us to do that. Empower us to do that. Give us a will to do that in Jesus' name.